Charged Up Episode 73, How We Went From Cash-Based to Cashless with Jacques Peretti. Are you ready to get charged up about your money, your credit, and your overall financial health? You've come to the right place. You're listening to Charged Up with Jenny Hoff. Welcome to Charged Up. I'm your host, Jenny Hoff, and a managing editor at creditcards.com, where we have information on everything credit-related, from how to get the most value out of credit card rewards to emerging payment systems and changing payment habits. Sometimes we may think we're just going with the most convenient option, but few things in commerce happen by accident. There's usually a lot of planning and strategizing on the part of marketers in order to change consumer habits. Jacques Peretti, BBC journalist, documentary maker, and author of The Deals That Made the World, talks to us today about one of the biggest deals in online commerce, the emergence of PayPal and the move toward a cashless society. So let's get charged up about learning what deals were made that changed the way we pay. Jack, thank you so much for joining me today. No, no problem at all. Thanks for having me, Jenny. So let's start with your background. This is a fascinating book, The Deals That Made the World, and you go over lots of different topics, and we're going to concentrate today on the system of cash and credit and how we use it now. But first, tell me a little bit about your background and how you did this book in the first place. Yeah, so I've been a BBC journalist for 10, nearly 15 years, and I've made many, many documentaries. And what I began to notice, I started to look at a kind of common theme Mm -hmm. with all the films that I've been making. And I realized that essentially, whatever I looked at, there was always a kind of deal that was Mm -hmm. at the heart of what had happened. And it was often a business deal. And so I started to think, well, business really has been the kind of the motor for how our lives have changed. And Mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to examine in the So how did you choose the deals that you chose? Well, I looked at all the wide-ranging aspects of human behavior. So our day-to-day lives, from the moment we wake up, the toothpaste we choose to use, the cash we spend, the jobs we go to, the leisure time that we spend, our consumer habits, all of these things, I thought the very sort of integral nature of the way we live our lives has been affected by these deals. And I wanted to look at how wide ranging those have been. Absolutely. And it's, I love it because it, you take us in the back room behind every deal and how the choices that we make that we think we mm. make independently. But of course, in a way they were orchestrated that we would be making those choices, right? And there's always a deal there. And so it's very yeah. eye-opening when you think, well, I just got that newest cell phone because I wanted to, but really, you know, everything is motivated. Yeah. So it, we tap into the psychology of human beings. And you go through several deals involving tech upgrades, food, drugs, work, risk, tax, wealth, robots, and cash. And we're going to concentrate on Mm. cash. And the deal that you say brought Mm. us from a physical currency world to a cashless world and how that will affect how we live our lives, Mm. how we spend our money. And you say in the book that PayPal was a catalyst for this ever-increasingly cashless society. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, of course. What was really interesting was two things happened at the same time. So Elon Musk, Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, who were three at that time entrepreneurs, you know, starting out in Silicon Valley, they got together and started PayPal. But at the same moment that they were doing that, which was the Mm -hmm. idea at that time in Silicon Valley was the gold rush was all about finding a secure online payment. Whoever could do that would sort of monetize the internet, which Mm -hmm. hadn't been monetized. But at that same moment, there was a guy at MIT called Drezan Prelich, and he was looking into pain of payment. So he was looking into the neurological process that takes place when we actually pay for something with cash. And those two things came together at a crucial moment. So what he discovered with his MIT experiments was that when you pay with cash, 
you actually feel physical neural pain. Mm -hmm. You know that flinch moment where you hand over money? There's a sort of moment where you actually don't want to hand it over. Mm -hmm. That's a neurological process. And so what the guys at PayPal discovered at the same time was the faster you make the payment, the less there is the neurological pain, the less pain Mm -hmm. there is. And as a result, the faster the payment, the more you're inclined to spend. And this was kind of like an absolutely sort of like a, a road to Damascus experience. Basically, it was a moment where they discovered that once you start making payments contactless or, or online, then you're free to spend without that pain and you will spend whatever you will spend. So it was what was really amazing was Drezan did, a, he did an experiment uh, at MIT with some of the students where he basically put together an auction for a fictional basketball game. He said mm-hmm. there's going to be a final and basically you bid for the game. And what he found was that people who bid with cash would just bid up to the face value of the ticket. So they wouldn't bid beyond that. But he found that when people paid with credit cards or contactless, they would literally bid six times the amount of the value of the... the, Yeah, it's extraordinary. So he said that literally, once you don't see physically the cash in front of you, you become untethered from the reality of spending. And so you're prepared to spend whatever it takes to get what you want. And this revelation sort of came at the same moment that PayPal were launching a version of online payment. And so it was an extraordinary moment where you basically would be able to spend without that neurological pain and it transformed payments. And then you go in the book about how eBay and PayPal teamed up and that eBay tapped into even a more infantile part of our brains where it is a game that you're playing or it's gambling at a casino. And even if it's nothing that you ever wanted or ever thought that you wanted, suddenly you want to win that bid and people just went out of control when it came to using this online currency that was nothing more than a touch with the button and then at the same time in this very gambling yeah. moment game, right? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, so it's basically like the sort of the re-infantilization of the consumer. So when you're a child, you say, I want that and I want it now. There's no sense of any pain. You want an object and you want it instantaneously. And so what you had with credit cards, first of all, but far more effectively with contactless payment and so on, was the idea that essentially you could have that childhood experience. I want it and I want it now. And so we became re-infantilized as consumers by this behavior. And what eBay was about was kind of very cunningly, in a way, recreating the idea of the... It came about at the same moment as online gambling took off. And here was this idea of a kind of addiction, a kind of addiction Mm -hmm. to the idea of spending, just as you would with, with gambling. So it was a really interesting moment with the internet. And I think that what they did was they kind of cunningly recreated the idea of the bazaar or the souk. Mm -hmm. So it was the idea of a kind of marketplace. That's all eBay was, was a platform rather like Google's platform or Facebook's platform. It's a platform for basically anything with any variable uh, value added to it. And I think what was interesting was that when you start to bid, you get into that gambling mindset. And so it has a kind of addictive quality. Mm -hmm. And that was what they knew about when they launched it. And so that tied to PayPal becomes a kind of intoxicating Mm -hmm. combination. Yeah, and it's amazing. And you did mention credit cards as well and how actually these students subjected themselves to MRI scans that showed, though, again, that there is an actual neurological event that takes place when you have to pay with cash versus when you have to pay with card. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about a little bit credit cards and how it has now evolved into these online payments? You know, obviously at creditcards.com, we talk about control your car.
cards, but there you still have to physically take out a card. There is some sort of emotion yes. that is involved. And now when you move into totally, just you don't have to do anything about it. What do you see changing as far as our habits go? Well, that's well, so when, when credit cards first arrived, they were a business card. So mm-hmm. essentially, you know, if you see the early ads for American Express and so on, what they are is that you see a sort of suave and it's always a male mm-hmm. businessman, white male businessman sitting on a plane. Air stewardess walks down the aisle. He flashes his card and it's a bit like he's saying, I'm James Bond. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an aspirational thing. I have this wealth and this tied up in this card. But what happened with credit cards was they moved from being a business tool to being a consumer tool. So they moved into the space of all of us using them. And it's kind of interesting is that all the the evolution of payment has been about making it ever more seamless. And so now you're going into a space where when you have the Amazon stores, where basically you just walk through and essentially the very fact that you walk through the store means you have paid for it. There's a store where there is no, there is no cash, there is no there is no need to pay for anything you just walk out of the store and so we're in a space where payment becomes organic it becomes evolutionary to the point where you make the payment without there being any neurological Mm -hmm. process whatsoever and credit card companies are aware of this and so when you talk to visa or mastercard and so on they say yeah you know the seamless transaction is dangerous actually Mm -hmm. and so what we need to do is we need to almost put in what they describe as speed bumps Mm -hmm. in the process so there are kind of rather than just accelerating down the road of the consumer decision you have various bumps at which the brain kicks in and actually says no hang on a sec i am paying for something, I do need to think about this. And so credit card companies are aware of that Mm -hmm. and the responsibility that comes with that. And they are actually actively doing something to put those speed bumps in place. That's interesting. And have you heard any of what those speed bumps might be? A warning on your phone, you just purchased this or you're thinking about purchasing this? Yes, yeah, yeah. So yes, to remind you, here is this thing, here is this sofa that you're buying, here is this car that you're buying, just to remind you, you are buying this, and you're going to have to put a number in. So actually, you know, this kind of, in a way, the clunky things that first happened, when you first Mm -hmm. started to pay online and so on, putting a number in, whatever Mm -hmm. that might be, they might reintroduce those things in order for you to feel like, actually, I have to do something clunky, which makes me start to think about what it is that I'm buying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know people who even sign up for the services through Chase or whatever bank it is that they sign up with that sends them Mm. an SMS the minute they buy something. So in a way, even though you've already bought it, it is a reminder that you just did spend this much money. And maybe the next time, you know, you just remember it. Anything that kind of reminds you, you didn't get that for free. Mm -hmm. Money came out of your account Mm -hmm. to pay for that. Let's talk a little bit about credit card debt. I thought it was interesting that you talk about in the chapter that a lot of times people Mm -hmm. think that more low-income people are just being irresponsible with money and they're not really financially Mm -hmm. educated. You say that's not necessarily the truth. And again, you talk about how this little neurological trick is really racking up credit card debt for all Americans. Yeah, so debt went from being a luxury to being a necessity and being actually the engine of the economy. So when you look at post-2000, post-the-crash, what you're looking at is the increasing of the, you know, the deliberate policies basically on the part of banks and governments to increase the level of debt because debt becomes the engine for growth. Mm. When you have an end to, I mean, we're slightly seeing a turnaround now because we're seeing a rebirth of manufacturing, an interesting moment for the economy. But at that moment, what you were looking at was literally more debt 
as the solution to debt. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is instead of debt being a luxury, a thing where you would say, oh, I'll buy this consumer good, a new car or whatever it might be, what you were looking at was credit cards being used to pay for electricity bills, for Mm -hmm. gas bills, for food. And so debt became normalized as a way of just literally the week-to-week budget. And I think at that moment, when debt became normalized, that was a real shift in terms of our attitude towards what debt is. And of course, government is the macro version of that. Mm-hmm. So the level mm-hmm. of debt which governments are prepared to accept becomes, it becomes a bit, you know, when Donald Trump was first elected and he said, we have a lot of power as America and the power we hold is the amount of debt that we are in to other nations like to China and stuff. That is actual real power. And so in the modern world, debt is power in a sense. Mm. Interesting. And, you know, when you think about it, when the banks have been offering no interest, essentially, there's really little incentive to save your money, right, for a lot of people. So they say, why would I put the money in the bank? I'm not making anything off of this, which is the reason why you're not having any interest. Absolutely. Debtors are rewarded. Savers are are penalized for saving. And, you know, that kind of goes back. I mean, I don't know how far you want to take the parameters of this, but it goes back to, you know, Black and Scholes, the idea of that notion of debt risk being the motor of Wall Street rather than safety. So you had this mo- you had this notion in the mid 70s where things there was a sort of philosophical shift in the way that business was done where risk was seen as the way that you would be rewarded. The more you risk, the more you are rewarded down the line. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if you play it safe as a business, you're going to ultimately die. And so that kind of notion underpins debt in a way. And it underpins the modern economy, you know. Absolutely. This is actually interesting. The game Monopoly, I think, was originally even invented to show how dangerous debt can be and how dangerous, in a sense, capitalism could be when it's abused, when people buy up all the railroads and they can charge you whatever they want. But I often mm. play Monopoly with friends and I'm a saver. And so I like to yeah. keep money in my bank account and I never mortgage my properties. And I'm always out very Mm. quickly because everybody else will totally mortgage their properties and buy the most expensive one. And they are rewarded for that. So it's interesting, the whole concept, it's built into us from children almost because you play games like that and you learn very quickly, okay, if I go into debt and if I take a lot of risk, I'm going to actually end up more successful than other people. It's interesting. And now we're getting back to very high debt levels that we saw before 2008, Mm. so lessons aren't Mm. necessarily always learned. That's absolutely right. How do you think tech companies are going to displace banks, if at all, or are they going to just work with them? Yeah, I think, I mean, when we call them tech companies, that's kind of a misnomer. They started out as tech companies, but ultimately what they want to be is the new banks. And they're quite clear about that, actually, because what they're about is sort of encroaching into every element of our lives so that we kind of, in a way, you know, what we have historically is the Sherman hammer and so on. Well, the history of capitalism is one of monopolies being created and then broken up by governments. But we're at a point now where what we have is actually the creation of monopolies you know, through the Silicon Valley companies, mm-hmm. and actually the inability of government to be able to break up those monopolies. I mean, the Facebook crisis, mm-hmm. various things have sort of, in a way, put a bit of a judder into the system, but they haven't really ultimately changed anything. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see with these companies is, is there's no limit on their ambition. That's what's so fantastic and perhaps terrifying, but also fantastic about the way they operate. You know, Bill Gates has this famous line about no tech company now that is worth its salt is doing what it was doing six months ago, Mm. i.e. its target should always be something other than what it was doing six months ago. And I think when you look at Apple, you look at Google, Google's pay systems, Apple's pay systems, Facebook, looking when they travel to, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg last year flew to 
Kenya. Mm -hmm. No one could quite understand in Kenya what he was doing there. What he was doing was he was looking at M-Pesa, which was a mobile money system, which had entirely transformed the Kenyan economy. And what it had done was it had meant that poor Kenyans who had no bank accounts were able to leapfrog at a moment the whole system of banking to use mobile money. Now, what what Mark Zuckerberg was interested in was thinking, well, if we (laughs) co-opt M-Pesa mm-hmm. on Facebook, we essentially become de facto the bank mm-hmm. of Africa. And one of the businesses that I talked to was really fascinating, saying that, you know, mobile money is, is transformative for small businesses in Africa. You know, somebody carrying cash would have been mugged, would have been bribed in the past. I worked to a woman. She said, now all of a sudden I've got my money on my phone. No one can do that to me. Right. And she said, I would never get a loan from a bank. And so in a way, this is kind of interesting moment where tech companies are looking at the world and they're saying, well, actually, we don't even have to look at the top of the pyramid. We can look at the bottom of the pyramid. The developing world is the real cash cow. We become the de facto bank for these emerging economies and for these emerging businesses, and we own capitalism. And so that's what I think kind of ultimately, then they make no secret of this. This is where we're, what we're about. Mm -hmm. We're about becoming the new banks. And at the moment, I think there's a kind of cooperation between the traditional banks and the tech companies Mm -hmm. but ultimately the tech companies don't need the banks but the banks need the tech companies Hmm. interesting do you think there's going to be a backlash at all or government regulation that comes down when donald trump was elected he made a phone call famously to rupert murdoch and said what can we do about regulating silicon valley and rupert murdoch laughed and said are you joking he said that obama's been in their pocket for the last eight years It's interesting how the Facebook crisis around Cambridge Analytica played out Mm -hmm. because it's ultimately played out as like, you know, when you look at Mark Zuckerberg standing there in front of Senate committee or whoever, or, you know, they are in awe of him. And Mm -hmm. I think quite rightly so, because they sense intuitively the power shift. They know that the power lies with them. And so I think what we're seeing is a kind of polite request for there to be some policing of what they're up to. But ultimately, Hmm. Silicon Valley own the keys to the new world, you know, and and they know that. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, they even own the ability to influence people. Right. So you as a politician, I mean, there's always probably going to be that fear in a politician's mind. If I go too hard on Silicon Valley, they'll punish me in some way. Yeah. I mean, what we've seen the last 30, 40 years is a kind of gradual in a way. I mean, what the left would call corporate capture. But, you know, what we could quite rightly call the diminishing of the state just in financial terms Mm -hmm. and the stepping in of corporations to the space that the state would have occupied in the past. And it's going to be a very interesting next 40 years where we see how the state evolves in terms of its relationship with these corporations. Because I think when you talk to people like Paul Pullman, who runs Unilever, or Indra Nui, who runs Pepsi, what they talk about is corporate responsibility, not as some kind of lip service to, you know, oh, we must do more for society. But actually, they literally say global warming, poverty, inequality. These are real things that will affect our businesses unless we do something about it. Mm. And they realize the power that they hold transnationally that governments simply don't have. And I think they know that that space is the space they now occupy and what they choose to do with that power. That's the question, really. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was also interesting in the book when you talked about, well, we do see that a lot of the countries in the developing world, just as a necessity, and because their cell phones are kind of their life, that there's a lot of smaller developing countries and cities that are going cashless Mm. faster than they are in the Western world. And yet there are some cities in Europe that are 
are in countries that are going cashless very quickly. And you mentioned, you know, Sweden mm. and Holland, Holland with the homeless people wearing certain jackets. And then in Sweden, kind of how bank robberies have diminished so fast because yeah. there's yeah. no money in the banks. Can you go into that? What are we seeing? What are those cities yeah. and those countries starting to look like? Yeah, well, I mean, that's extra. I mean, that story was just a great story where a guy basically goes in with a, well, a shotgun into a bank and says, give me all your money. And they go, we, we don't have any money. <laughs> we literally don't have any cash. I'm really sorry. And the guy sort of walks out, you know, really deflated two seconds later. I mean, this is the new world, you know. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, it's a phenomenal. I mean, the homeless coat thing is really interesting. So university developed this idea of you give, you basically swipe your card against the guy or uh, his coat in that it goes cash to, to their account. Now, actually, that's been developed. So there's been a homeless community that put together this idea that they can sort of crowd fund their own accommodation mm. if they all get this same swipe through their coats. It's an interesting moment where you sort of look at that and you think, is that brilliant or is it terrible? It's really weird. Yeah. It's a really weird. And there's a lot of these moments in the modern world where you see this kind of combination of the two. The technology is amazing, but socially you think, is that right or is it horrendous? Right. I can't work out which one it is. But there's no doubt. I mean, when you talk to all the tech companies, they all say, to go back to your question, that without doubt, if you talk to, I've talked to Didier Hoss, who's one of the strategists at Uber, and you hear this over and over again. And they, what they say is, oh, well, you know, the developed world is kind of hampered by its 20th century infrastructure. So they say, well, you know, the kind of the architecture, the road planning, all the laws are all kind of pre-internet laws. And so they say, when you try to get anything done, it's really cumbersome and unwieldy and it takes too long. Whereas when you look at the developing world, it's kind of like a tabula rasa. It's like, you know, they, they can leapfrog all the 20th century hmm. infrastructure and stuff because they never, they've never had it to start right. with. And so they can become digital automatically. And that kind of in a cre it's created a kind of level playing field where mm -hmm. you sort of Singapore and Taiwan and South Korea, you see Asia like suddenly sort of rode ahead of Britain, Europe, America and so on. And you sort of think it's a really interesting moment of the power shift because mm -hmm. countries that aren't encumbered by all that pre-internet stuff, mm -hmm. they can suddenly kind of motor in the fast lane to the future. And so I think that's sort of where we're at. You know, that, that feels to me the space we're in now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating space to be in because we go to a lot of conferences and we hear at a lot of fintech conferences just about developments mm. that are happening with apps or with payment systems. And to, to see which one is mm. going to be the one that actually takes over will be interesting. And in fact, talking about that, I want to talk about blockchain a bit. If you could go into a little bit the history yeah. of blockchain and how it works, and then what role is yeah. it playing in our currency today? I think blockchain is going to be basically as important as the internet. So mm. when the internet was, I mean, where blockchain, blockchain put very simply, and people struggle with understanding what it is, but at root, I think it's quite simple. What it started out with was a security system, was a way of making fantastically big financial deals secure. So when you talk to bankers, finance people, they talk, to, they talk about it as a digital handshake. Mm -hmm. And what they mean by that is, you know, in the past, you know, security was an issue because you would have various people holding the information in place. Whereas what you have with blockchain, the analogy is with a nuclear submarine. So you say when you press the nuclear, when you get the nuclear key in a submarine, there's no one person 
that holds the code. Mm -hmm. The code is held by six or seven different parties and those parties have to come into the conversation of the deal mm -hmm. at specific moments to provide the code. So in a way, this blockchain technology was used to make multi-billion dollar deals secure. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that was kind of the genesis of blockchain. But what blockchain has evolved into, I think, is it's evolved into potentially revolutionary tool for, for us, mm -hmm. for ordinary people, to be able to fight, in a way, the power of Silicon Valley and the tech companies. And I think that's because what it gives us, potentially, is the ability to understand every single nanobyte of information about any one thing we're doing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the first place where blockchain is being used is in food. So interestingly, say you want to buy a piece of chicken from your supermarket. Now, currently, you go to the supermarket, you look at the package, mm -hmm. and it has information on the back of the package, which has been given to you by the producer. Mm -hmm. So it will say it comes from Texas, mm -hmm. or whatever it says. It's organic. And you sort of think, well, I only have the word of the producer that it is organic right. and that it comes from Texas. With blockchain, you literally, you take a picture of that piece of chicken that you buy or whatever, you access that information, and it will tell you from the field to the fork every single aspect mm -hmm. of that chicken, yep. where it's come from, who handled it, how long it took to get there. So it's basically the opening up of data on a new level. And I think once we access it, then it gives us a tool for fighting back in a way. And mm -hmm. I think it's a really important... And what people talk about with blockchain now is they say that it's almost like the internet pre the browser. Mm -hmm. So we're at the browser moment. We're at the moment where the browser has been invented and where we are able to access the internet for our own purposes. And I think that's where blockchain is at. And it has the potential to sort of revolutionize everything. That's kind of where we're at. And I want to go into blockchain talking about also cryptocurrencies, because right now it's just it's mm. the wild, wild west of cryptocurrencies, right? There's tons out there. Yeah. People are trying to get in mm. fast. Everything everybody knows that at one point this bubble is going to really explode. Maybe one currency will be decided upon per country mm. or the government will start regulating it. What do you see happening with cryptocurrencies? Because I did talk to somebody in my uh, I did an episode yeah. on gold and he said, you know, cryptocurrencies might be like a good idea right now, but eventually they will be regulated by the government. Probably the government itself yeah. will take one cryptocurrency that will become the new currency instead of the greenbacks that we have mm -hmm. now. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I think we're kind of at a bit of a moment before the dollar was created. So you had an interesting moment in, the, in America pre the dollar. You had something like, I mean, have a guess how many currencies do you think were in operation in the United States before the dollar? How many do you think? I think you say in the book somewhere, but I think it was like a, a couple hundred. Yeah, so you're talking about 200 currencies operating wow. concurrently within the United States. So and nice. this was everything from, yeah, this is everything from supermarket vouchers to things you would buy from the shop. You know, basically the dollar was created as a way of kind of unifying, mm -hmm. you know, a, a currency. So what you're going to now is a sort of pre-dollar world, you know, a world mm -hmm. where you have Apple Pay, Bitcoin, every single God knows what. And these are all currencies. They're all currencies of a sort. And cryptocurrencies are part of that mm -hmm. jig. But I think what you're seeing, obviously, Switzerland, Sweden, various countries are actually trying to launch, quote unquote, legitimate cryptocurrencies of their own national currencies that are cryptocurrencies. So you're seeing a moment where there is an attempt to bring the cryptocurrency under national control. And I think what you will see is a fight and you'll probably see an accommodation 
between the two. So you will see underground cryptocurrencies continue because there is a need for them. The crime world needs them. You know, the shadow economy requires them. And also national governments require them. And I think cryptocurrencies will just move into that space. You will see a new jigsaw. And I think you'll see a jigsaw that, that kind of mirrors in a way the cash economy. So you'll see a jigsaw that has both above the board, national government signing up to cryptocurrencies. And you also have a dark side and underside of cryptocurrencies that still operate in the way that they have when they first began with Bitcoin and so on. And I think that's kind of the space I think it'll go into. Mm -hmm. I think that's the inevitable, really. And finally, what do you see happening within the next 10 years, 20 years, as far as us transforming into a totally cashless society? Do you think that's going to happen? Oh, I think it's interesting. When you talk to... Ken Rog, I mean, I interviewed Ken Rogoff, and he was kind of a big advocate of the end of cash. And he said it's a fascinating thing. He said the more governments try to kill cash, the more cash is in circulation. <laughs> and he said it's a fascinating thing. Something like the free economics guys reckon that it's something like a quarter to a third of global business is basically run through the cash economy. Hmm. And so it provides a very real need. And then what's interesting is that the more that governments try to control cash, you know, they're unable to collect tax from corporations. So they looked at the bottom of the pyramid. They say, can we make a cashless economy so we can tax everyone at the kind of lowest level? It's not going to really work. The amazing thing about cash is it's been around for, you know, 2,000 years, you know, and it's not going to disappear tomorrow. And the need for it or the need for some version of a shadow mm-hmm. economy continues. So I think you write off cash, as Ken says, you write off mm-hmm. cash at your peril. And you know what's extraordinary is they say in business that the more ludicrous the idea, mm-hmm. the more legitimate it could be. And so you see people now trying to invent cryptocurrencies based on, you know, gamified versions of it mm-hmm. or something. You know, you think, well, what is the thing? You know, is, is there going to be a video game that has, you know, Crash Bandicoot and, you know, bananas as a kind of version of a currency that you buy when you're playing on your Xbox? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of bonkers thing will become the new currency? And I sort of think you'll just enter a world where we'll have a thousand different currencies running concurrently. And actually, there'll be an attempt to kind of centralize and control that. But it will fail ultimately because capitalism is about human endeavor and it's about trying to find ways through the system, Mm -hmm. ways that haven't been thought of before. And I think it's inevitable that it can't be controlled. I think that's the nature of capitalism. It can't ultimately be controlled, but they will try. And that's kind of my feeling about it. Fascinating. Fascinating. I think it's the question a lot of us are asking, you know, is there going to be a backlash? Are we going to go back? What are we, what's the future going to look like? And I, I think it is a confusing future to know, but it's fascinating to hear what you think might happen. I think, you know, Wally, which was the amazing mm-hmm. Pixar movie about us all traveling space, was an incredible movie. But a lot of people, a lot of analysts looked at it and said, wow, could it be, you know, is that company who runs the future, you know, one mm-hmm. company that runs everything, literally our food, our transport system, our communication systems, you know, is that Google? Is it mm-hmm. Facebook? Who is that company that is satirized in, in, in Wally, the movie where we leave Earth? And I think what you've seen, as I said earlier, what you've seen with capitalism is an interesting kind of sort of Constantina thing where there have been monopolies and then you know, oil, you know, the banks, they've been broken up in the past mm-hmm. by government because mm-hmm. government had the power to do that. Do they have the power to do that now? That is the central question. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, that is the sort of tipping point. That's the moment at which corporations feel, okay, we really do have the keys. Mm-hmm. We really do own 
this stuff. And I think if that's the moment we're at, then we're in a new ball game entirely, one from which capitalism hasn't been in previously. And I think that's, for me, the question that we're at now. Yeah, and it's a question that comes to mind when you read your book, The Deals That Made the World, Reckless Ambition, Backroom Negotiations, and the Hidden Truths of Business. The cash section is just one of the many sections you go through. So it's a fascinating look at how we do the things we do and what we consume and the deals that went into making that happen. And I always ask people at the end of my podcast, our show is called Charged Up. What gets you charged up about Mm. figuring out the deals that impact the way we live our lives? You know, I just think life is about understanding what's happening to you. And I think we're undergoing a revolution now in the way that people underwent a revolution in the mid-19th century, far in a way more fundamental because Mm -hmm. it's, it's affecting everything. It's about biology, it's about DNA and mapping of the genome. You know, we're at the moment of multidisciplinary revolution, which is extraordinary. And I think, to me, just the very idea of understanding where we're at, looking at where the money, you know, follow the money. What, mm-hmm. What's the money about? And I think to me, there's a sort of, there's just an excitement. We're living in a way in a sci-fi fantasy. We're living in a, we're living in a moment where science fiction can't compete with reality. Right. And to me, that's very exciting. So what gets me charged up is just the very idea of understanding where we're at and trying to decipher where we're going next. Fantastic. Jack Peretti, thank you so much for joining us today. Great discussion. I highly recommend your book. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me for this episode of Charged Up. I'd love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe so you're alerted as soon as a new episode is up. If you have questions you want me to answer on air, please send an email to chargedup at creditcards.com. To read the full transcript for each episode and access even more great financial information, head on over to creditcards.com. Until next time, get charged up about your financial future. (laughs) 